You're listening to the pulpit ministry of North Life Baptist Church with Pastor Harley Snowd. At North Life Baptist Church, our mission is to encourage each person to take the steps of loving God, growing together, and serving others. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.northlife.church. Now, stay tuned for today's message. Amen. If you will take your Bible tonight and turn to the book of Jude the massive book of Jude. And uh, don't you love those little books that uh, take you hours to find sometimes? Jude. And we're going to look at the first few verses of this uh, book tonight, starting a new kind of mini-series, probably spend about three weeks in this book, maybe four, as the Lord leads uh, over these next few months, um, as we have just a few regular scheduled Sunday nights in the next month or so here. Uh, Jude chapter, uh, Jude chapter one, I guess, or chapter whatever you want it to be. And we're going to look at the first seven verses tonight. Um, Just a word of note, uh, some of them stepped out, but next Sunday uh, will be the last Sunday before um, Sadie, Miss Brandy, and Brother Nick go to Senegal. And so we'll be having a prayer of dedication over them next Sunday morning in the service and let you know just a few details about the trip. So they're leaving, Michelle, is that the second? Does that sound right-ish? Uh, March the 2nd, and uh, many of you have been dropping money in the um, container out at uh, the Multiply Worship counter and excited to see what God's going to do through them as they're gone uh, March 2nd through 11th. So um, if you would, just begin to pray for them as they have just uh, under two weeks prepping for that. So we'll talk more about that next week, but just was thinking of that tonight uh, with Sadie up here and uh, had some conversation this afternoon about that trip, so pray if you would for them. All right, Jude, let's look at verse 1. We're looking at a new series tonight called Call to Contend, and we'll get to verse 3 in just a moment where we find the title for our series, A Study on Battling Apostasy in Jude. So I, I purposely, I think the Lord led me to purposely put these two books together. We just finished Galatians, right? And if we're not careful, we leave Galatians, other than there's a couple of verses about, you know, don't use your liberty for license to serve your flesh, but to serve one another. If we're not careful, we leave the book of Galatians and talking about not being legalistic, and it's almost like we just need to be tolerant. And so I think it's, it's not one or the other, it's both. And so we're going to look at Jude, and it uh, gives us some things to not chill out on, as maybe it felt from our last series, but to stand up against and uh, this great little book. So that's where we're going to spend a few Sunday nights here together. Let's look at verse number one. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called, mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you Notice now the last part of verse 3, that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. And so we're kind of looking at the other end of the spectrum now, uh, turning it into legalism, kind of was where we spent our time in Galatians. Um, and denying the only Lord God and uh, our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believe not. The angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness, unto the judgment of that great day. And I'll give you some thoughts on 
what possibly verse 6 is referring to and do so through scriptural perspective. Verse 7, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So we're going to look at, first of all tonight, we're going to look at it, the contending from three different tenses. So tonight we're going to talk about contending historically or fighting for the faith with the perspective of the past in view. We'll talk about how we view it through the lens of the present tense, and then we'll also talk about um, the future tense. But tonight, looking at this, contending for the faith uh, with a uh, a historical perspective. Let's pray and ask the Lord to help us tonight. Father, thank you for these folks, their faithfulness to your house tonight. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can um, dig into the meat of it. And Lord, this little book is... um, Just replete its full, Lord, with um, substantive truth. It takes time to process and to apply, and I pray that you would open it up to us, that you would illuminate our hearts and minds with the help of your Spirit. Father, we would not only understand theologically what is going on in this little book, but also um, practically what that means for us in this day, uh, where we too are called as this generation of believers to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. Help us, Lord, in our study tonight to see it through the perspective we have as we look back and how you've worked in the past and what you've done in our individual lives. Um, We just give you praise in advance for what you'll do in Christ's name. Amen. Um, I don't know if you've noticed something going on at the grocery store. I think I've talked about this a couple times. I've tried not to make this my soapbox, but groceries nowadays, people ask, can we, not should we, all right? And I'm thinking specifically of merging products where, again, I've talked about the cereal aisle and the flavored applesauces, and we could go into all kinds of directions with that. And my wife, Heidi, she is like the reason they do that, okay? If it's new, who cares if it tastes absolutely nasty? We have to try it, okay? It's just, that's just how she's wired and, uh, and I'm cynical about these things. Don't want to play, the, you know, play into the narrative of the marketing and all that goes with that. Um, but uh, ju- they just released this past Wednesday. This is a huge announcement, so please take note of this. This will help your Easter be, I don't know, whatever for you. But I remember last year, actually I think it was two years ago, Pepsi and Peeps, you know, the little... I don't even know how to describe what they taste like, those little marshmallow things with the little granular sugar on the outside of them, um, where they had some sort of marketing campaign where 3,000 people, if they like reposted or whatever, they were trying to get something to go viral, then they would get um, delivered to their house like a 24-pack of yellow cans of Pepsi, and it's Pepsi X Peeps, so Pepsi times Peeps. I don't get all of the marketing of it. But anyway, they just released... Uh, Wednesday that it's now going to go national. And so at your local grocery store, you can find now yellow uh, cans of peep-flavored Pepsi, and you can keep all of it, okay? You'll not see me waiting in line to get the first shipment that comes in uh, to Worcester. Um, Something I'd like to challenge your thinking on this evening, and I would say, if you were to ask me, where do I see weaknesses in our theology Um, And I'm not talking just we as in the church in general or Christianity in general. I'm talking in our church. I think one of the areas that I see as a weakness that I'm convicted and challenged by is what do we do with people who claim Christ and yet mix what we even would believe about Christ with false teaching? Um, I'm talking just like Pepsi and Peeps, things that aren't, in my opinion, meant to be together. 
how, how do we deal with people that we even know personally? A lot of us have interactions through Christian education. We have interactions with family. It gets real messy, doesn't it? Where someone is even claiming Christ or claiming to associate or identify with his teachings. But then, thing, and I've had conversations with many of you in this room. What do I do with that? How do I um, not pounce on it or blow them out of the water? But how do I not in any way affirm where they're, uh, they're associating with that, which is uh, false teaching? And the word that I would be one example would be ecumenalism where you have um, folks who don't even teach the same thing about salvation on a platform together at a big rally or something of that nature. Promise keepers would probably be the one that comes to mind, not knocking everything and everyone who was associated with that, but often the lowest common denominator. And as soon as we associate in that way, we lose the doctrine that clearly God's word teaches. So, so this, this little series we're going to study together is how to contend without being contentious, how to be um, faithful to stand without being um, unreasonable in ways that are just our own preferences or takes on things as we studied in the book of Galatians. Um, and so how do we interact with others who claim Christ but partially or completely associate with heresy or the word is apostasy? That's what's being confronted here in Jude. Um, those that we know that that apostasy or heresy is the opposite of our Savior um, in our Lord. And I would just say this to start out this study. We cannot maintain solid doctrine without separation from and resistance to false teaching. You do understand that, right? I understand it's so much easier just to be nice and just to kind of go along to get along, as we would say, but that does not age well. And for the sake of the next generation, we have to pass on to them the same faith that's been given to us. If we have the doctrine of God's word faithfully in their we all have things in our minds and hearts that are just traditions and things that just creep into our theology. But if we have, by, by and large, the faithful teaching of God's Word, that didn't just happen, right? Somebody fought for it. Somebody stood for it. Somebody defended it. Um, and so this is something that's been uh, working in me, and I think as your pastor and we as a church, this is an area we need to grow in as we associate with all kinds of things. Um, and there's a lot of things under the label of Christian. I've told you before, <laughs> I don't go into Christian bookstores and just blindly buy books that are written by so-called Christian authors. Um, In fact, I tend to be pretty skeptical about that, and I think a healthy sense of skepticism is a good thing. So with that in mind, let's talk about how we contend with um, these issues in our day-to-day lives. So the key word is in verse number three, where he says this, you should earnestly contend for the faith. And I want to just for a moment to define the word contend. So the word contend if I were to show it to you in Greek, the word here that's found in the originals, or in the, not in the autographs, but in the manuscripts, um, the word in Greek, if I were to transliterate that into English letters, um, would, would sound very similar to agonize. That's kind of the word here. So it's a, it's a struggle. It, um, it carries the idea of both in athletics as well as in a military setting, intense struggle. Um, fighting with all of our might. Um, One lexicon would add this kind of color um, to to the word, an effort expended in a noble cause. So it's it's everything you've got toward this high holy calling um, that God has given us. So it's a struggle, it's a battle, takes all of our energy uh, to honor and to obey the command to contend for the faith. Um, there was an article, I think it was in the Daily Record, somewhere I saw this a few weeks ago. How many of you have been to um, 
the Ohio Western Reserve National Cemetery in Ripman. How many of you have been there to that? Would you raise your hand? Isn't that an amazing place for our area? It's kind of out in the middle of nowhere. Um, and I've been to um, you know, the big national uh, cemeteries, Arlington, and, and it, this one's legit. I mean, it feels the same. It's not as big, obviously, as Arlington, but pretty impressive. And they just, a few weeks ago, bought a golf course that's adjacent to them, 156 acres for $2 million, whatever it was, and they're expanding. Um, and you can judge a culture by how it treats its, its, those who die, right? Fighting for your freedoms, fighting for our freedoms. And I was just thinking about that, the fact that we honor those that fight the good fight. We do that in, in military things, but often those willing to stand for the faith, it's almost like just calm down or just back off or why are you so worked up about that? Um, and I think we need to give greater reverence and appreciation for where we need to stand, where others need to stand, and see it as something that pleases the Lord. Now, I ask you this question, then we'll get into our text. If I were to ask you what, almost, what was true of almost every successful military leader in history, like what do they all have in common? Um, if you can think of the Napoleons and um, those even in our, our 200 plus storied years as a country, those that are successful military leaders, what is something they all shared in common? Having not read all of them and don't know everything about all of them, the thing that I see often as a parallel is they were students of history and they understood their moment in time, how significant the battles of their day were to the bigger picture. I don't know if we realize tonight how much Today is connected to yesterday and the day before and, and 3,000 years ago. And how much that's setting us up for the next 100 years and 200 years. So we have to appreciate, have a sense of history and our part in it in the battles that we need to fight um, for the Lord. Uh, so let's talk about how we can do this as it relates to the lens of history and giving us perspective as we fight for the faith. Let's talk about two historical perspectives to help us fulfill the call of God to contend for the faith. Number one, let's talk for a minute about, first of all, personal history. Number one, we need a greater sense of personal history. The teens would appreciate this illustration. Some of us, this might be lost on us just a bit. But somebody kind of tried to illustrate the things we control with a remote control or with a video game controller. Um, and I just thought this was a good um, kind of visual because when I say to you, fight the faith, you know, fight for the faith delivered to the saints, if we're not careful, we're focused on everybody else, right? Like what they need to change and do. And I just want to encourage you, we have to start with ourselves, with our own practical theology. And so I love just kind of the media we consume, setting boundaries, priorities, reactions, exercise, attitude, time, food habits, since we're on food today, um, sleep schedule, self-talk. All of those are things that we control. And here's what I've noticed. A lot of those that where we're dysfunctional issue forth from poor theology, where we're not fighting for and contending for the faith in our own minds. We're believing things that aren't aligned with Scripture. We're tolerating, really, heresy, to be blunt with you, about God, His motives or His mandates, um, and we're not controlling our personal relationship uh, with God. So a lot of this, as it relates to contending for the faith, is controlling our own thoughts and emotions, and making sure they are aligned with the faith that is once delivered to the saints. If I can keep myself in check, I've found everything else that I lead and impact tends to go better. And when I'm not where I should be, because I'm not leading myself, um, that tends to have bad issues and implications downstream. And so we've got to, first of all, understand our own history with God and how that affects our beliefs about Him. 
So let's go to the text now and let's talk about a few things that Jude gives us in these first few verses. So before he deals with all the compromisers and the heretics, he reminds us of these truths that reflect and reveal our own personal history with God. So let's just break down these verses. Uh, first of all, in verse 1, let me give you a couple of subpoints to this. Number one, contend by remembering your personal history with God's Son. Contend for the faith by remembering your personal history with God's Son. And notice how Jude, before he gets to the admonitions, he sets this foundation of his own relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of James. So let's talk about, first of all, the author. These are sub-points probably not there in your outline. Number one, identity through his son. All right, first point there, identity through his son. In verse one, he's going to talk about this. And so Jude first gives us his own sense of identity or relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, He says, first of all, that he is the brother of James. Um, From that reference, as well as the other things connected to the book of Jude, we believe Jude likely, there's some debate about this, obviously, with some of the human authorship of these New Testament books, likely was the half-brother of Jesus Christ. Um, James, the leader at the Church of Jerusalem, and Jude were both, uh, through Mary, connected to Jesus Christ, not through Joseph. Um, And yet, notice how he describes himself. He doesn't say Jude, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, or the brother of Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the servant of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that in just a moment, but here we see him referencing he is the brother of James. This is not true of all of us in the room, but many of us, the faith that we have partly came to us through the family God gave to us, right? Um, And I think often we underappreciate that. Those of us who are not first-generation believers, you who are first-generation believers, you have a value to defending the faith that we that are second- and third-generation believers sometimes do not have. And that's not to our credit. Some of you, you face mockery from your family. You as an adult received Christ and repented, and your life changed, and your friends changed, and you've been ridiculed and mocked, and you're used to that. For some of us, we've operated in the margins of having the faith given to us by our parents or our grandparents. And because of that, we underappreciate the value of standing um, for the faith. And so Jude here is just reviewing his own uh, pedigree, if you will, his own family that God had given him that would lead him to yearn for and desire to stand for the faith. It's interesting, Paul to Timothy has kind of the same admonition in 2 Timothy 3, He says, but continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and been assured of knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. So Timothy, his mother, his grandmother, the influence. um, and, And so may we see that and appreciate that and steward that well as we pass it to the next generation. So he's the brother of James, but also he is the servant of Jesus Christ. Again, not half brother not brother, he refers to himself as servant. And you're going to notice this as we go through this book, that one of the issues with the apostasy and the apostates is they rejected authority. They were not willing to submit to authority. And Jude here first models that. He submits himself to Jesus Christ. He is modeling this Christian maturity and standing for the faith that we all should aspire to. Um, And so we should never think that submitting ourselves to Jesus or submitting ourselves to spiritual authority is demeaning. Uh, It is something of great value and significance. And I was thinking about this as it relates to that little word servant that's found there. 
Without humility, we cannot stand against false teaching because that's what the false teachers appeal to, right, is our pride and our desire to be autonomous, to do our own thing. Uh, And so we must humbly submit to Christ to be faithful to his teaching and his word. So that would be Jude, and we see that in the beginning of verse 1. But notice now he speaks to not, so we talked about the author for a minute, the identity through his son as it relates to the author. Now let's talk about the audience, the target audience of this book, this letter at the end of verse number 1. He says this, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. And so we see this calling probably a reference to the Holy Spirit, since his name is not used there. We see the other two persons of the Trinity. The consecration um, that we see here, or the preserving, uh, we see is connected to the Son, and the sanctified, uh, we see is connected to uh, the Father. And so all of the Godhead, we have relationship with God himself. He is actively at work in our lives. Uh, So we are able to be faithful, not just to teaching, but to the God who has given us that teaching. Um, I don't know if you're an introvert or not. I am by nature, and that may surprise you, but a lot of us that are pastors, and I spend more time not with people than I do with people and study and prayer and other things that I'm doing. Um, but if you are an introvert, let me give you the following scenario. So you, let's, I'm thinking of going to the hospital or a hotel or something, but you're going into an elevator. As an introvert, what is the most exciting part of that moment? It's the fact that you can get those doors to close before anybody else gets in, right? There's just this moment of relief. I don't have to have this awkward moment with some other person I don't know and either make small talk or pretend the other person isn't there or whatever you do. Um, Just disconnecting from people. Um, I think sometimes our issue with being faithful to defend the faith is because we're defending a body of truth instead of the personal connection we have with God being the motivation. Like, I'm not contending for a faith that's just words on a page. This isn't just a dogma or a creed. Our faith is not creedal in nature. It is is a personal relationship with the God who gave it to us. So like when I, my marriage certificate, or we could go through things, my ring I have on my finger, the only reason any of that has value is because it's connected to Heidi, who's in the room. So that's why I brought that illustration up. She's usually in the nursery. Ooh, I'm glad I noticed that. Um, but it, it's, there's a personal connection, right, and commitment. I'm committed to her. So anything that affects our relationship or our standing with one another is deeply personal. I've seen two people defend the faith and have completely different tone and effect because, one, it's just picking a fight. They're right, but they're being contentious. And the other person loves Jesus, and they love his word. And they know that if they don't get this right, that person won't receive him as Savior, and they won't spend eternity. There's so much in the balance. They love that person, and they love Jesus. It's deeply personal. And so Jude here doesn't just give them, you're preserved, and you're sanctified, and you're called. He doesn't just say that in an abstract way. He connects it to the specific persons of the Trinity. It's deeply, deeply personal. And so we have to be willing to own that and steward that better by defending Um, Not just the faith, but the God uh, who has given it to us, associating with him in a very personal and intimate way. Um, And so Jude here opens this up. He He says, to them that are these things. And I would just say to you, that includes us. Are we not the same things? Are we not sanctified by God the Father? Are we not preserved in Jesus Christ? Are we not called? So the audience is not just these of this day, but it is us 
um, this evening. And so we're included in uh, what God is calling. So if we're included in verse 1, that means we're also included in the command of verse 3. Does that make sense? So if we are the things at the end of verse 1, then we are not, well, we're of a different generation, and this was just meant for a very contentious time and a certain period of church history. No, this book and this moment and this calling is also for us. And it's interesting because Jude um, was used to unmask some apostates in his day, and there was another Jude, wasn't there, named Judas, who eventually was exposed, one who claimed to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be the faithful Jude, willing to call out those who are not aligned sincerely with our Savior and his teaching. All right, let's go to verse 2. So we contend by remembering our personal history with God's Son. First of all, with our identity. Number two, provisions through his Son. So our identity comes through Jesus. Number two, he gives us some provisions um, that should enable us to contend. Verse 2. He gives us three of them, mercy unto you, and peace, and love be multiplied. Um, I know for me, one of the things that hinders me from standing sometimes for the Lord is I just feel weak, I feel inadequate, I feel like I don't have what I need to stand faithfully for the Lord. And here in verse 2, God gives us three things that enable us to stand in very uh, carnal days, and very compromising days. Um, he gives us these three things to stand against apostasy. First, his mercy. Um, that sustains us during times of difficulty or tension. His peace gives us calmness even when evil abounds around us. One of my biggest, um, I don't know, I think one of the things that concerns me most about, how, most about how we profile or how we portray our faith today is we Christians are just as breathless and panicky and stressed out and worried and fretting as the world is. And we are not portraying the faith in a way that's faithful. Where is what grounds us? Where is the peace that comes through the judge as we studied this morning? And so this peace grounds us in the midst of all that's going on around us. And then his love, it, it, it assures us, it comforts our heart, even as others maybe threaten us. We know that God loves us. That's enough to keep us standing for him. And so Jude's first readers needed this support um, to undergird them, to stabilize them just as any soldier would do in the day of battle. And God gives us that same hope um, this evening. Um, <clears throat> a friend of mine who pastors in the South, it's only he could say it. He said, the biggest pastor problem I have, so he's talking about how sometimes we pastors pick on each other. He said, the biggest pastor problem I have isn't the feller across town, across the state, or around the country. It's the pastor of my church. That's the biggest problem. Um, and I would say for many of us, that's where we need to fight the fight for the good faith. The faith wants to deliver the saints. We need to fight it in ourselves. We need to deal with the fallacies and the falsehoods and uh, the wrong theology that we tolerate in our heads, hearts, homes. We need to deal with it in our personal spaces. So our faithful defense of the faith is not just academic or abstract. It is deeply personal. Where have you forgotten that to be faithful to God requires you to be faithful to what you have shared with him? the teaching, the doctrine, the faith that's been once delivered uh, to the saints. Um, and I don't know how else to illustrate this, but think about if I said something to you and someone else twisted my words, you heard what I said originally and then you heard that they twisted them. And if I could overhear you, if you knew I was listening, you probably would go to bat for me, right? You heard what I said. And I think sometimes we do not take seriously enough others around us that are twisting and distorting what we know God has clearly said. We ought to take it very personally. 
to be willing to step up, to stand up, to speak up wherever God gives us opportunity. All right, number two. Go, if you will, now to verse three. And he says, Beloved, when I gave all diligence, so he kind of pivots, he was going to go in one direction with his letter, to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. Number two, contend by remembering your personal history with God's revelation. So your personal history with God's son. Number two, your personal history with God's revelation. Um, I am not good at it whatsoever, but I love photography. I, enjoy, I, can, I can usually tell when a picture is a good picture and when it's not, how to get it or what they did wrong, I don't know. But um, the other day I saw this. This is, as far as we know, the first picture ever taken in human history. Um, and it, uh, the picture was taken in France uh, in 1826 by a guy named Joseph, and I can't pronounce his last name, um, it's taken from an upstairs window of his estate in, Bur- in the Burgundy area or region of France. Um, and he used a, a process called helography, he- which used a bitumen of Judea. It was like an asphalt-type texture. It would coat a piece of glass or metal. Um, and then when light would hit it, when they would take the picture, it would, it would leave the residue of what, what was seen there through the lens. But that was in 1826. Um, that literally is just over 200 years ago. We've only been able to capture images for a little over 220 years or so. Um, And think about how pictures have reshaped our world. Um, Think about the picture of the sailor kissing the nurse at the end of World War II. I mean, we could go through all kinds of pictures, that moment captured in time that just captures a moment, or some now with criminal investigations, like the ability to take pictures and surveillance and now video, and the, the list goes on, all that's developed out of that. We have been only able to do that for 200 plus years. And then there's God's word that's forever settled in heaven. This revelation of God that is secure, that is fixed, uh, something we can count upon, something that we ought to be willing to adhere to. And so being faithful to what God has revealed to us, these pictures, if you will, these portrayals of his truth um, in his word. So I would give you two of them as found in verse three. Number one, the faith of his revelation. So he delivers to us his revelation and the faith that it generates, the faith that it evokes in our hearts. Faith comes by hearing the word. This faith, once delivered to the saints, that gives to us the ability to believe God and to have relationship with him. Uh, So Jude here, it says at the beginning of verse, his plan was to write about the glorious salvation um, that all believers had in common, but the Spirit redirects him because of the urgent need that was before him. And so he gives this very simple kind of essay or um, lecture, if you will, upon an appeal to the readers to stand or to contend earnestly for the faith. And you notice in the end of verse 3, he describes it as this, the faith which was, what's the next word? Once. Once delivered unto the saints. Um, not once upon a time, but once for all. It, it never, it's never coming again. We have the complete canon. We have the closed revelation of God. It has been finished. God has given us this body of doctrine. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard this before. You might want to write this down to help you identify heresy and apostasy, but this helps me. If it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. 
That has really helped me because I'm all the time, hey, pastor, did you hear about? Here's a new book that gives a new thought on. Here's a kid who died and came back 10 seconds after he died about heaven. And I'm just not picking on the kid or the family, but all this new stuff that often gets directed our way under the banner of Christianity. Uh, if it's new, it's not true. If it's true, it's not new. It is, it's forever settled, right? Um, we have this faith that's been once delivered. Um, and so when a teacher claims to have a revelation which is above or beyond what we find in Scripture, we reject it without further thought. The moment someone says to me, I know this is what the Bible says, but I just, here's something I want to add or something I want to take away from, uh, we ought to dismiss that out of hand. Um, the faith has been delivered, and we need not heed or give attention to anything beyond it. Um, and so these attacks are being made against this faith that's been deposited or entrusted to us, and Jane, or Jude calls believers to stand uncompromisingly for it. We ought to stand for the inspiration, we don't have time to unpack these, the inerrancy, the authority, and the sufficiency of God's Word. Plus nothing, minus nothing. It is sufficient. Um, we don't need someone else's voice to weigh in. We don't need something added or taken away from it. Uh, it is the faith that he has given to us. We must defend it. And I would say this just lovingly, don't go out fighting for it if you're not reading it. It's amazing to me how many people, believe, man, the Ten Commandments ought to be back in schools or we ought to be praying in schools and they're never praying as a family. There's no Ten Commandments on the walls of their own home. It, we, we get into fights when we just need to first make sure it's, it's really woven into our day-to-day -day, uh, rhythms and the nuances of our life. That's, how, that's where we start. And from there, God will lead us. All right, verse 4. So it involves faith, this revelation he's given to us. But notice now a little word tucked in the middle of verse 4. For there are certain men, all right? So Judas thinking of specific people. And we'll come back to what maybe he's alluding to in a moment. For there are certain men, this wasn't abstract in Jude's day and those that were reading this letter, uh, crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men turning, notice this, the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Number two, the grace of his revelation. So we have to adhere to the faith. We must also adhere to the, adhere to the grace that we find uh, through his revealed word. Now, who is he referring to here in verse 4? We don't know for sure. It could be he was referring to Old Testament prophecies um, and declarations of calling out those that were apostates. Isaiah 8 would be an example of that, verse, 18, or verse 19 to 22, possibly Jeremiah 5, 13 to 14. Um, you see later in the New Testament some references to the same kind of things, 2 Thessalonians 2, 6 to 10, 2 Peter 2, 3 or just a couple that came to mind of where um, these men are teaching this false teaching and God is confronting it and rebuking it. Uh, but we see here call, him calling out these certain men. Sometimes you have to just say who it is, right? If someone is directly and primarily associated with a false teaching, that name probably needs to be set. Um, we rarely do that in our ministry here because we're not trying to attack people, but sometimes it's so much a part of who they are and that teaching is so associated with them that we must call it out. That certain person is associated with this false teaching. We cannot plead ignorance or act surprised by the attacks upon God's word because God's word over and over warns us they're going to do it. They're going to attack it. We have to be willing to stand against it. And so we see here James, or Jude, I'm sorry, warning us and reminding us of how important it is to be ready. 
And you notice two things that are true of these who abuse or misrepresent the grace of God. And this is always true. First of all, you notice that in their behavior, they turn the grace of God into lewdness or into carnal um, excuses and activities. They twist the liberty into license. They pervert the freedom to serve into the freedom to sin. And Galatians talked about that some toward the end of the book. And here Jude references it again. And then secondly, not only did they do that, they deny the Lord Jesus who is the means of God's grace. They deny his right to rule. They deny his deity. They deny his death, his resurrection. They basically reject all that he taught and all that he stood for. They reject Jesus who is the means to God's grace. Now, I would like you to think about this for a moment because I would guess if I read verse 4, you might tend to think those guys are out there. Did you see what he said in verse 4? These certain men crept in unawares. Most of these false teachers are in our ranks in some way. I'm not necessarily saying in the ranks of North Life Baptist Church. I hope that's not true. I'm prayerfully trying to be one who's guarding against that, starting first with my own teaching. But it's a part of, quote-unquote, the Christian ranks, Christianity, Christendom. They are posing as ministers of the gospel. They likely hold positions of leadership uh, in the church. Um, and so we have to be willing to sense that, to see that, and when necessary, stand against it. Um, I heard a guy who said this recently, because I hear this sometimes, well, I'm not going to die you know, on just any hill. Um, I'm going to be strategic. He said this, a man who says I'm not going to die on that hill, but never fights on any hill, is not a man you can trust to fight for anything that really matters. Sometimes you have to stand. Um, and I think we've gotten so used to, well, I don't want to be contentious. I don't want to cause any waves or ripples and that we're not standing for anything. And so we fall for everything. We must be faithful to stand. Contend because of the God we know and what he's revealed to us in his word. All right, final word of application. We'll move to our second point. To be faithful to the Lord, we must defend the faith in its God-revealed fullness and completeness. This includes not just being positive, but also negative where necessary to stand uh, for the faith. And I see in our ranks, brethren, I'm just challenging you tonight. Many of you have friendships and family, as do I. And if we're not careful, we're tolerating direct attacks and assaults against God's word. They may not mean it that way, but the way they're presenting it and others that are being misled by it, that is what it is. And we've got to do it with the right tone and pace, yes, but we have to stand even when it's uncomfortable. All right, which leads us then to our second point. Number two, so personal history. Number two, confrontational history. So let's talk now about some times in the past where God confronted very directly false teaching and the part that we also uh, must play. Um, the new thing that I was trying to do to be more healthy is eat oatmeal every morning, okay? Um, and some of you do that because of maybe your doctors told you you have to with certain things, heart-wise or otherwise. And... Uh, the oatmeal I was eating, I have realized, was cheating. It had um, uh, flavors and sugars, and so I decided to go with the half, the half sugar version. And I realized that I have not fallen in love with oatmeal. I've fallen in love with sugar, okay, in the mornings. And the stuff I'm eating now that I bought like 150 packets of it, it's just the instant stuff to make in the morning, pop in the microwave, um, that I've got a long road to hoe now to try to eat this oatmeal. And it still has half the sugar, so it's not like I'm eating like raw anything, um, but just trying to adjust to that. Um, 
it, do you ever, are you ever confronted with where you thought you were and then you realize where you actually are? Uh, that's just a dumb example. I'm on the food kick today. Some of you were, some of you were joking about your gangster handle, you know, um, and just trying to work through that so that you could keep up with uh, what's Ian Black uh, Popsicle. You know, you want to hang with Black Popsicles. So you got to figure out your, your gangster thing. White Muffin, was that it, Josh? Yeah, that's very inspiring. That's very intimidating there. Um, that might not be the handle to use when you confront others, but uh, it's just funny to me how you think you're doing well, and then, and then you're confronted with reality, right? If you've been there, you go to the doctor, or you have someone give you some honest feedback, and I think all of us, if we're honest, let's talk about this for just a second. How many of us, if God had never confronted us, would even have relationship with him tonight? It's funny how as the years go by, we start getting soft and not soft in a tender way. We just start rotting a bit or we get a little fuzzy about the fact that our relationship with God began with confrontation. It's been often improved by confrontation and others around us, the same thing is going on and then they have to choose what to do with that confrontation. So there's a lot of confrontation behind us in our world and in history and in scripture that should challenge us that this has value. This is good. This is a wholesome thing if it is submitted to God's truth and his spirit. So Jude here is going to warn his reader about, readers about the dangers of apostasy by going back to three examples. We're going to look at all three of them quickly in verses 5 to 7. And you notice the end of verse 7, he says, are set forth for an example. So these are examples of what God has done in the past to confront apostasy, and therefore the reason we must do so in the present tense. All right, so to be on the right side of history, we have to be willing to stand with God and stand against who he stands against. That's, that's kind of the premise of these last few points. All right, number one, look at verse five. He says, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this. All right, you guys, at one point, this was clear in your minds, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. So let me give you three final points and we'll be done. Number one, Contend by remembering God's confrontational history with Israelite apostasy. Contend by remembering God's confrontational history with Israelite apostasy. So Egypt is brought up as a reminder that, think about this, most of the Israelites who were delivered from Egypt were unfaithful. They died in the wilderness. They did not believe what God said. They didn't follow through. First when he said, go in, and then when he said, don't go in. So they didn't go in when he said, then they tried to go in when he said, nope, you're done. They resisted what God told them. And so an entire generation, minus Joshua and Caleb, died in the wilderness because they did not believe what God had clearly said. Hebrews 3 talks about that, verse 16 to 19. And so this idea is that God confronted them. We see that clearly in history. In fact, I was thinking about this since we're studying Judges. That generation, like we, we talk about the apostasy in the book of Judges, that did not come out of nowhere. It was perpetuated generation after generation because they didn't deal with it, and God tried to deal with it, and yet it continued on. And so we've got to deal with apostasy, otherwise it is perpetuated. This means, by way of application, because this happened within the ranks of quote-unquote God's people, this means we must contend against apostasy that is hiding out within our own families. Apostasy that's hiding out within our own church. Apostasy that's hiding out amongst our own religious ranks. In this community, Wayne County is a highly religious area. And it is full of apostasy. I see it everywhere. And it's hard to even speak up, let alone stand up 
against some of the things that are perpetuated under the name of and banner of Jesus Christ. And so we have to be willing to do so. In fact, I think I'm willing to stand up against these other two groups we're going to talk about in a minute, which are pretty scary and intimidating, sometimes more so than I am those that are closest to me. But we have to be willing to do that for the sake of the gospel and of the faith. Um, this might help you. I know this is maybe a sidebar a bit, but somebody said this the other day. I think this is so good. Um, watch out for those and be very discerning of people who either are the hero of every story or the victim of every story. And I found that to be a good way to identify the motives of people who are trying to teach or promote something. Watch out for those who are always the hero of every story. Let me tell you what I did then, and then I did this, and then I said this amazing thing, um, and all that. Or I'm always the victim. It, it, basically, it's all about them. Um, and so that often will help us identify the apostasy uh, in our own ranks. And it could be even, just maybe giving you something that's a little easier, it could be that's not a person in your home, in your personal space, but it's just a voice you're letting in. It's just somebody you need to unsubscribe to the podcast, you need to turn off that radio program, you need to not watch that show or that channel, whatever the, there's a lot of angles to it, but we need to make sure that we do not allow it in to our own space, even who we have preach here, things we associate with, being very careful uh, to make sure that we are dealing with apostasy from within. All right, verse 6. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitations. This is probably one of the most interesting verses and kind of, hmm, what's he talking about kind of verses. Um, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day. Number 2. Contend by remembering God's confrontational history with angelic apostasy. So he first talks about Israelite apostasy, number two, angelic apostasy. I'm just going to, we don't have time to get into this tonight at length, but here's just a thought for you to chew on, and then I'll give you maybe a couple things to support that. It's very likely, if I ask you, when did Satan fall? When was the great fall of Satan and the demons, which are just fallen angels, when did that occur? We tend to think of the moment when Satan fell, right? Isaiah 14 talks about it. We see other references to it in Ezekiel and other places where um, you see uh, he takes a third of the stars, is what Revelation refers to, a third of the angels, and they rebel against God, and now we have the demonic influences, devil, the devil himself, Satan himself, and all that they're doing. The problem with that, if that's what's being referenced here, notice in verse 5 that it says... They left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness until the judgment of that great day, seems to indicate Judas saying, in the present tense, they're in bondage. Well, last time I checked, the demons and the, and the devil himself, they're on the loose, right? He is the prince of the power of the air. He's doing, under the constructs of, of God and his sovereignty, he's doing whatever he wants to do, that, that God is redeeming and using for his purpose. And so it seems to be that that is not the reference that's given here. So I think possibly, just a thought, that there have been two apostasies or two periods of time where angels left their first estate. First, the one referenced as Lucifer is, is fallen and the host that followed him, and then a subsequent one. And I'll just give you a, maybe one theory that maybe you've heard before. Some would um, say that um, this is a reference to the Genesis 6 passage where the sons of God marry the daughters of men, and, and they would read into that text in Genesis 6, verses 1 to 4. Um, they cohabited with the daughters of men, and all the 
the uh, ramped up um, defilement and uh, just hedonism that plagued the world before the flood, that this fed into that. Um, others feel that Jude was making use of an apocryphal book of Enoch. Um, some would suppose that, um, which we would not um, subscribe to, but some would teach that. Um, the Apocrypha, the book of Enoch, and in it, it refers to something similar to this. All I can say is this, Jude did not give his source here, um, but his readers, he seems to assume, knew what the source was or knew of this incident because he doesn't unpack it further. But we do say the fall of these angels, their rejection of God and his authority and his truth, and God deals with them. Nowhere in verse number six do I see God being passive. He confronts them, doesn't he? He binds them up. Um, he deals with them. He reserves unto them chains of everlasting uh, darkness until the day of judgment. So he binds them. He will one day judge them. God confronts even the angels themselves when they leave what God originally intended for them. All right, so what's the, what in the world does, how does that apply to us as New Testament believers? All I can say is this. We don't know all of the, fill in all the blanks or the gaps in verse number uh, six. But this does mean that we must confront with God's help even the apostasy that is empowered by the darker powers and sources in our world. We can't back away from that. If we sense something is demonic or something is satanic, we have to still stand against those things. Now, with one caveat, go to verse 9. We'll unpack this later. Michael the archangel contends with the devil. That same word is used. That's interesting. He disputed about the body of Moses. Again, crazy just where, what, what's all being talked about here, durst not or dare not bring against him, the devil, this is Michael the archangel, a railing accusation, but said the Lord rebuke thee. So we confront angelic apostasy in the name of the Lord. We do it with God's character and God's person. We don't do that in our own wisdom, our own strength. We'll be like the disciples. Do you remember that? And they tried to cast out a demon on their own and they got attacked, their, their deficiencies were exposed in that moment. So we only confront these kind of false teachings with uh, the power and person of Jesus. Does that make sense? So there are times where we run into heresy and apostasy that it's more than just someone wants conveniently something that will accommodate their lifestyle. It seems to be fueled by something darker, something demonic. Our job, listen to me, is to still contend for the faith in those situations wisely, soberly, vigilantly, but we are not to back down because greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And we have got to stand confidently for the Lord uh, in this dark day. All right, lastly, verse 7, and we'll come back to some of those themes as we work our way through the rest of the book. Verse 7, the last example, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Lastly, contend by remembering God's confrontational history with pagan apostasy. So Israelite apostasy or religious apostasy, apostasy. number two, angelic apostasy, and then lastly, pagan apostasy. It's just in your face. Um, they don't care. They're going to do what they want. They defy the living God, and we have to be willing to stand against it. Um, I'm reading a book right now called The Black... I can't remember the exact title, but it's about what is called the Black Orchestra, uh, which would include Bonhoeffer and some of those who stood against Hitler, tried to undermine him toward the end of World War II. Um, in fact, they were a part of a few, some of them, the politically active ones, were a part of trying to assassinate him to take out Hitler. And one of the little sections in the book that I was just reading the other night 
so that one of the things that the guards or the, um, the, the Germans, the Nazis would wear is on their belt buckle. I've seen some of these belt buckles in some of the historical uh, either museums or videos or things that I've read. That on their belt buckle, this is the Germans with all that they were doing that was heinous and defiant of God, had these words on their belt buckle, Gott, G-O-T-T, this would be in German, Mies uns, Gott mis uns, which means God is with us. And these same guys would load Jewish people into, into, trail, you know, into train cars and ship them off to gas chambers. It's amazing, isn't it? Just the blatant, and that's nothing new, right? God is with us, and they, they, they invoke the name of God, and then they defy everything about who he is and what he's revealed to us. Um, and we must stand against those kind of influences in our day. In fact, I would submit to you, the moment that Germany decided to exterminate the Jews, <laughs> they were going to lose, okay? I've read, I don't know if you've read much about World War II, but there's so many moments, critical moments. It wasn't because of the allies. It wasn't because God defeated them because they turned on God's people. Uh, but it's amazing that they invoked the name of God while doing the very thing God had commanded them not to do. And so we have to be willing to stand against that kind of apostasy in our day, calling good evil and evil good. That's everywhere in our day, and we as God's people must stand against that. So Jude here uses the example of Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns um, and, and what happened, what God did to them because of their defiance of his word, his faith, his truth that he had revealed to mankind. Um, and so this punishment that God rains down, this fire is a picture, an illusion of what God will do to all who reject him, not just physically, but also spiritually. Uh, so the point of this section is that God, God wants his people to stand up against that which is wrong for the sake of those who will suffer. Uh, remember Abraham's prayer, if there's 50 righteous, if there's 45, he works down, he's we just read this in our, our sequence through the, the book of Genesis and our, our small group sequence of study and, and praying for and standing not just against the false teaching but for the sake of those who are being misled by it. Have you ever thought about how many babies were in Sodom and Gomorrah? How many innocents we would call them that, that were ruined because of the carnality and the lustfulness and the defiance of their parents and grandparents? In fact, Lot's own family suffered greatly, did they not? Um, his own wife, and the list goes on, his daughters and son-in-laws and all those who died in that, they perished because someone, including, I would submit to you, Lot was not willing to stand up. He vexed his righteous soul instead of standing for um, the faith. And so just this thought as it relates to verse 7, because I think we're not careful, we, we, we focus only on standing, but why are we standing? We're standing for the sake of those that are being misled. We can't just wash our hands of this unregenerate world and say, God, burn it all down. Come back and just, just have your way. Because that affects people you and I know who are being misled by those who misrepresent God or who defy God. And so we must stand and confront falsehood before it's forever too late. One guy the other day I heard that I respect who stands regularly in the public forum for truth he said, I'm an ambassador of Jesus Christ standing at the gates of hell trying to redirect traffic. That's his spirit. And I think that ought to be ours as well. We're not trying to make waves just to make a name for ourselves or get people all stirred up. We're trying to defend the faith so others can follow it and others can receive the blessing and benefit of this grace and this revelation and this faith that's been once delivered to the saints. So these three events all support a claim that God judges certain people 
as described in verse 4, of every category who apostatize and everyone who associates with them. So may we not be found associating with them or supporting them um, in any way. As we finish tonight, I was <clears throat> watched a video clip of a well-known preacher of our day. He was preaching, and he had on an Apple Watch. I don't know if any of you have uh, uh, one of those. I, I can't. I'm too fragmented already in my thinking. I couldn't handle that. But he had one on, and it has a sensor on it where if you fall, um, some of you would know more about this than me, it, it'll notify emergency personnel, and usually it'll ask you a few questions or text you something. And so he's up preaching. He's a real, like, animated guy. And whatever he was doing, it made his watch think he had fallen down. And this is a video. It's, it's online. It's just a hilarious little clip. So he's waxing eloquent. This is the end of the sermon. And, and it, he, he kind of looks at his phone, and then finally he just stops and says, I didn't fall. I'm still preaching. I'm preaching. You know, he said, I didn't fall. And can I just say to you, that's my prayer. Isn't it yours that we won't fall? We'll just keep standing. We'll keep preaching. We'll keep declaring the faith despite how others perceive it. And sometimes we just have to have that hard conversation, as hard as that is, for the sake of the gospel. The concern needs to be less about look at all those people who are fading and misleading others away from the faith. It needs to be more about this question, where do I, where do we need to stand against it? That's where we need to focus the lion's share of our energy uh, and our time. All right, one author said this, and we'll pray. The contemporary nature of this ancient letter, a reference to Jude, is astounding. The issues confronting the church in our day are identical to the ones that Jude faced. The same challenges flow down through the centuries like meandering rivers cut with deep beds and proven to wind great distances. Jude would have us to contend. He wants us on our feet, exerting great energy for the faith. Ours is a noble cause. The faith needs our action. Do nothing and the gospel will be entirely gutted of its transforming strength. Do nothing and the glory of Jesus Christ will be utterly dismissed. We must stand. And so will you choose this evening and this week as you go through your week to answer God's call for you to contend for the faith with a greater appreciation for personal history with him and a greater appreciation for the confrontational moments in history that have led us to this moment. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word today.